Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. We are on the road yet once again, and uh, we are uh, in Colorado where it is raining, getting some nice thunderstorms up here. Let me, uh, before I forget, because I'm forgetting everything today, I, let me so apologize to my brothers that I was uh, supposed to be on a program with this afternoon and spaced it completely. It wasn't in my, I know what happened. This, this is what happens. You, you arrange something in email. It's like, okay, I need to put it in my calendar. So you go over and you open your calendar program and you see something else. And you go, oh, I've got to do that. And you never end up putting it in your calendar. And that's what happened. And I apologize and let's reschedule as soon as possible. But I'm just going to tell you now, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Um... Trying to juggle too many balls, and it's uh, I'm gonna drop them, and it's just the way it is. Uh, my apologies ahead of time. I hate when that happens. It's very, very embarrassing, but that's uh, that's what happens. So, uh, Mr. Program, gonna have to catch up on that one. And um, anyways, so we press on. Um, I would highly recommend that you find the time quickly uh, next couple days to listen to the last edition of The Briefing with Dr. Moeller. I found it very interesting that he dedicated an entire program to one subject. Uh, He's done that a few times in the past, but not very often. And it was on the coming demographic, 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 whatever it is, demographic collapse um, I learned some things that I did not know. Um, I knew that places like um, Japan and Italy were in really bad shape. When I mean really bad shape, if you have, if your replacement factor, that is basically the number of children that women in your society are having, you need to have 2.1 children per woman um, to maintain your society at its current population level, not including, obviously, people coming in from outside. And many Western nations, Russia um, being one of them, if you include that as a Western nation, but uh, have been below 2.1 for a long time. It took America a while to get there, but We are below it, and Japan and places like that were so far below it that, in reality, there really isn't any hope of turning it around because you can't just decide one day, okay, everybody, start having babies. You, you, as as Dr. Moeller said, you can't have, you can't birth an eighteen-year-old. There is a real time gap. Uh, in that type of a type of a situation, and so I was unaware that the lowest I had seen was one point two, I think. Um, and it's isn't it amazing that Italy is so low? You used to think of Italian families, just big, huge Catholic families, right? Not anymore. Not anymore. And abortion, of course, huge factor in all of this. 
Birth control, huge factor. Total change in worldview as to our purpose on earth, huge factor. Culture of death. Hey, lots of babies means lots of life. Culture of death doesn't want that. Uh, you do, you don't you think you think there might be something to the fact that they are destroying healthy bodies so that they will never have children, never have children. You put a thirteen year old girl on testosterone and it doesn't take long before she'll never have children. Stuff just dies off. Can't work anymore. And of course, you do bottom surgery, and that's it. Um, it's all over. You think they're not connected? Of course they're connected. They're all part of the culture of death. But what I didn't know was South Korea. South Korea. I think he said it was 0.8. I had not heard of any society that was below 1. 0.8 is simply non-recoverable. It, it's, it's impossible. And uh, so Dr. Mole did an entire discussion on this based on an uh, article in The Economist, uh, a non-Christian article in The Economist uh, that does not have any answers. Uh, we have answers, uh, but uh, we are seeing some major, major changes. You need to understand, we're talking about economic collapse. We're talking about depression simply due to the fact that there, are, there aren't enough people to do what needs to be done. And people just don't, I don't hear it being talked about. And so I would highly recommend to folks, you go listen to uh, today's, it is uh, June 29th. Uh, today's edition of the briefing, uh, Dr. Moeller gives you a lot more information there. And he always links to other things. And so uh, I would highly recommend that to you. Um, I also, uh, I got a text and uh, I'm not sure if uh, Rich, you're going to start hearing this, but it's raining. And it's going to be raining hard. And um, whether this microphone, you know, the other microphone didn't care if it was raining hard. <laughs> but you're probably going to start hearing stuff. And maybe even hearing some thunder and lightning. There's some big, big thunderstorms uh, running by. They don't last very long, but they're uh, they're big. And there's the roof. <laughs> it's... It's right above me, so no way, no way to avoid the live character of the dividing line. Um, I got a text, and I was unaware of this. I, I just wanted to make a mention of it. Um, on the last program, uh, I mentioned that I was listening to the debate between Chris Date and Dale Tuggy. And I remember back, it, it may have been even before we made the first videos in the studio, in the main studio in Phoenix. I mean, this, I think this may have been before 2010. I could be wrong, but I remember doing a audio only program with Chris on the deity of Christ. And we, that was one of the most in-depth discussions of the key texts 
on the subject that that I did anywhere. Uh, it was was really in depth stuff, and so you know, Chris has uh, gone the direction of dealing with the subject of the nature of hell, conditionalism, annihilationism, all those related issues, rethinking hell, things like that. And I have honestly said that that is a topic that the vast majority of people that I know of who hold to what is called a historical orthodox view have never thought through the objections from the other side. Um, It is a really challenging area and I think I think I stunned a number of people a few months ago when I said large majority of New Testament scholars and how do you define that um, are we talking about believing New Testament scholars professional New Testament scholars are we talking about Protestant Roman Catholic Orthodox um, there's so many different ways of adding those things up. But I would say it is a fair statement to say that the large majority of New Testament scholars are conditionalists. They they don't believe in eternal conscious punishment in hell. Um, John Stott did not believe in that. And I would say that almost everybody who holds what we would call a, a creedal perspective, um, though a lot of the early creeds didn't address anything like that either, but um, do so completely out of tradition and not because they've ever, you know, they've, they've read certain things and yeah, Jesus talks a lot about hell, and but there are questions about, well, what does that mean? What is the duration of hell? What's the purpose of hell? And... Uh, it just seems to me that a lot of people, that's, a, that's an area that's just sort of, it's just it's out there somewhere. And Chris has really gotten into that stuff and, and you know, taken a strong stand from his, his viewpoint on, on the topic. <laughs> I, can, I can just see out the front, the window of the front door of my RV. It's raining kitties and doggies outside. I can see the unit next to me. I can see all the water drops bouncing off the roof and everything. It's pretty big. And I look <laughs> look out the door. And here comes... First I see a, an umbrella walk by. And then there's a line. And here comes this miserable looking dog. <laughs> you wanted to go for a walk. Well, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> Sorry. It's a live program, folks. There's something I can do about it. What a absolutely miserable wet dog <laughs> walks by outside going mom this is not what I meant you know uh, you just have to have to enjoy life have to laugh it's been a long day anyway I was talking about Chris um, Chris has done some great debates he's a really sharp young guy well I'm not sure how young he is anymore <laughs> everybody's young to me anymore um, but a friend of mine uh, who evidently knows Chris in another context, and I think I know what that connection is. Um, <clears throat> mentioned that Chris's wife, Star, has a cancerous brain tumor. Chemo helped, but did not eliminate the tumor. 
Um, they're now doing other um, forms of, of treatment. And I couldn't help but, but think of Warfield and the reality that Warfield could have done so much more than he did in his life as far as production of literature, teaching, travel, etc., etc. But he, his wife, um, there's some disagreement as to, you know, this was a long time ago on medical stuff, but some of the stories that was struck by lightning and was deeply impacted by that, but, but she was an invalid. And Warfield just wouldn't leave her side. Um, he would he would teach. He obviously did writing as best he could, but he wouldn't leave her side. And you know, as a result, people from from a distance, you know, years and years later, don't know the background. Sort of wonder why Warfield wrote all sorts of great great stuff, but why didn't he do more? You know, and so don't know not knowing um, the commitment he made, and I think. I think eternity is going to reveal that. Um, we're, we're going to see where people's hearts were. That's a scary thing, I think, for any of us to be judged in that way. But uh, I would just like to put out there um, that we've got a fairly decent-sized uh, audience here, and uh, prayers for Chris Date and his wife Star would be uh, extremely uh, appropriate. Um, you know, once you start getting into your, you know, just going into my seventh decade, uh, <clears throat> looking back and realizing just how blessed I have been health wise and my wife, you know, my wife, once she had to retire from American airlines forcibly, um, went back to teaching aerobics. Uh, she, I've done all the aging for the couple. Uh, she's in great shape. She's just incredible along those lines. And uh, we've just been really, really blessed. And But if you're involved in ministry, you can't. It doesn't take long before you know so many people who struggle so mightily with health issues. And, you know, you get married, you say for better or for worse, but... How seriously do we do we take that in the sense of do we really, really think about what is involved in you know a married couple and we're talking real marriage here. Uh, Chris has been doing this thing this month where he's been mentioning people who are fighting against the LGBTQ madness and especially the the trans madness because that really is <clears throat> a madness on a level that's hard to discuss and hard to understand. But he's been thanking people yet, and I've I've been following his um, posts on that on uh, Twitter. I don't do much on I don't do stuff on Facebook. I just it's just not my thing. So anyway, um, pray for Chris and his wife uh, and the, the medical situation they're facing, and that the Lord would grant uh, healing and uh, grace uh, in the midst of, of all of this because, uh, you know, I, I think back to 2011 and the debate that I did at RTS in Jackson with a Wesleyan. Um, that was on total depravity. 
But afterwards, a student came up to me with his wife, and they had a little child in a stroller. And he said that the child had a fatal disease, um, that it there was there was nothing that could be done about it. And and he he had said that I had helped introduce him to Reformed theology and the sovereignty of God. And he said, if I if I didn't believe God had a purpose in this, I, I couldn't survive it. I couldn't go through it. And uh, I'll always remember that. Well, I guess I shouldn't say things like that. Um, maybe I won't, but I hope and pray I will always remember that. Uh, what we... A, a pagan said it <clears throat> um, in a movie, one of my favorite movies. And it's true. And it's very biblical. So it, it expresses a gnomic truth. Uh, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And a Roman soldier said that in that movie, Gladiator, if you're wondering. Um, but it's a very true statement, biblically. And uh, so, prayers, appreciation, um, there we go. All right. So, uh, I wanted to talk about, I want to get into, want to do some teaching. We have this wonderful opportunity, we have this wonderful studio and the ability to dive into things. And, and so, uh, <clears throat> I want to do some teaching the background to help provide foundation. We've certainly discussed these things in the past at various times. Um, I'm really thankful. I, I asked uh, the guys in our channel, "Hey, is is the um, is the database with all the dividing lines and stuff, you know, up and running enough that we could do some searches in it?" And it was. It's not. I guess it's not complete yet. I don't know. I'm not sure the exact status right now. But uh, a search was done for me. I couldn't believe. The stuff that it pulled up, it, it literally would would bring up um, the video of the dividing line where I used a certain phrase with the time indexed. So all you, so literally, you could put a, a name, a phrase in, and you'll get this result, and you can scroll through it. And when you go to any one of them, you go, oh, I think that's it right there. You click on it, and it starts the YouTube video of the dividing line at the point where you made the, the comment. I mean, you're not having to listen through it. and do it. That's Scary. I keep saying how absolutely wonderful, but how absolutely scary it is. Um, and any preacher would understand if someone could go to the web and search everything you've said in over, what, what are we at, 2,200 dividing lines, um, 181 debates, I don't know how many sermons. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my, um, hey, but that's what judgment's going to be about, at least as far as know discussed by Paul in 1 Corinthians a different 
not judgment as to life, but what we did. So, um, that somewhat behind a, um, I was actually riding down a mountain, um, this afternoon and Rich sent me a link to, uh, Twitter and Dale Tuggy had, um, commented yet once again. And uh, this is uh, today. And he said, uh, because Hos El Yuthroy, that's me, despises philosophers, he has never learned from us how reasoning about numerical identity works. And this is why he has never had a clear position about the Trinity, one clear enough to argue for or against. And then he gives a link, I'm sure, to one of his own presentations. Now, one of the things that was very frustrating in listening to the Date-Tuggy debate is that Tuggy just simply presupposes certain categories and can't reason past them. And no matter how many times you go, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, No, your categories are too narrow for what I'm saying. Your categories are too narrow for what Scripture says. It doesn't matter. He just defaults back to it. His is a philosophical perspective. It is not determined by scripture at all. His exegesis is determined by his philosophical conclusions. His exegesis is horrifically shallow. Um, Very, very bad. The man's not an exegete by any stretch of the imagination. And so I just wanted to respond and say, first of all, I don't despise philosophers. I despise philosophy that does not begin with the one who created all things, whether in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, or authorities, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and him all things soon as they can hold together, and that's Jesus. And that includes Dale Tuggy's philosophy as well. So it's not a matter of despising philosophers. A Christian philosopher a man who begins with the authority of Christ as creator, the one who has made me, the one who's made my mind, the one who has the right to determine how far my thinking should go and in what direction it should go. A person who uses philosophy in the service of the higher revelation that is found in Scripture is a wonderful individual. But you and I both know, in the vast majority of philosophical schools today, the vast majority of universities, you're not allowed to start there. You can't begin there. Just not allowed to do it. That's all there is to it. So um, I do not despise philosophers, but I do despise uh, man-centered philosophies. But I just, he has never learned from us. Oh, man, from us philosophers. It doesn't matter that I taught Christian philosophy of religion for years at Golden Gate Baptist Theology. They don't care about that. That's irrelevant. Who? <laughs> that must have been bad. Who cares? Um, yes, I, I do not call myself a philosopher, just as Dale Tuggy should never call himself a theologian or an exegete. He's a philosopher. Um, but the funny thing is, the issue of numerical identity, this is his 
major faux pas over and over again. He is absolutely certain that the statements of Scripture are telling us that the Father alone, in exclusion to all else, is God. And it doesn't matter if the New Testament, for example, in fact, one of the things I was thinking about on the ride today, and we'll be covering all this, but let me just mention it in passing before we go to something that's really important that's related to this. He is so fixated on the identity of Theos as a Unitarian concept that he doesn't even give thought to kurios. Kurios, the, the, the word that is used in the Greek Septuagint for the divine name itself. See, theos is, is not nearly as specific as Yahweh is. Not nearly as specific. And yet, who is... Why do we have all these New Testament writers bending over backwards? Peter, Paul, John. To identify the Son as Yahweh. And even in the key passages in, in Philippians 2, in the Carmen Christi, where Jesus is identified as Yahweh. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Well, that's to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, Yahweh. Father's identified as Yahweh. The Son's identified as Yahweh. The Spirit's identified as the Spirit of Yahweh. And you know what Tuggy's response is? That makes three gods. Nope, there's only one God. Nope, can't be. Because your philosophy is not big enough for the Bible. Not even close to it. You didn't get it from the Bible. And so when you try to force it on the Bible, you have to throw all sorts of stuff out. That's, that's the essence of these things. So, um, so uh, I've never had a clear position on the Trinity. Uh, okay, well, anyhow. All right, let's see how this is going to work. Um, I want to start with a text that's directly relevant to what we were just talking about. And once again, let me, for, if you missed the last program, in, in wanting to spend some time, invest some of the program in responding to Unitarian arguments, I again have an overarching purpose here. Um, the vast majority of evangelicals aren't ready to deal with the best Unitarians, the best Jehovah's Witnesses, the best Muslims, uh, because we we live in a echo chamber and we just are what we believe is repeated back to us over and over again, and so everybody just figures that's what everybody believes until someone comes along and says, "I don't believe them," and then we haven't thought it through enough to uh, really engage with it. And so I don't believe for a second that by putting emphasis upon these areas and, and doing teaching in these areas, that we're leaving behind the subjects we were talking about before. Because for us to, for example, uh, talk about um, how the church is to interact with the state, when you hear people saying um, that, look, Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. He was the one, he's, he's enthroned 
after his resurrection, Daniel chapter 7, um, his dominion will never end. So what does that mean? Well, we have to be prepared for someone to say that's not what the Bible's teaching. We have to understand what the foundations are. And so I don't see that. In, I think I think this is absolutely central to everything else we're talking about is you have to understand what the Bible teaches about who Christ is. Absolutely central. So I'm going to see if we can do this. And let's see what happens. Here is the Christian Shema. The Christian Shema. Now, you know what the Shema is, and I find it rather interesting, and I know where this came from. I, I had to chuckle the first time. Um, hi. <laughs> I had to chuckle the first time I heard this happen at Apologia when we started attending there. And that is, Jeff had taught everyone at Apologia. And I guess this is something you have to pick up as you come along, because we've had hundreds of people join the church since I first got there. Um, everybody knows the Shema in Hebrew, uh, which is right there. All of, uh, well, you, yeah, yeah, actually, come to think of it, you can actually see all of it. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And, you know, when you hear No, it's still working. You know when you hear the, the, the sound that some electronic device just shut down? You get worried. <laughs> just like, hmm, what did I forget to turn on? Whose battery just died? I don't know. Looks like all the power strips are on, but... <laughs> it's probably a little entertaining to watch the guy trying to do way too much tech, tech, techno stuff. Anyway, uh, so everybody at, at Apologia can say Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. This, of course, is the confession of faith. If, you, if you've looked at, for example, the Mishnah, uh, which is the earliest codification of Jewish traditions and rabbinic teachings and stuff like that, uh, about 250 years after Christ, and then you have the commentary, and that's called the Gemara. You put the Mishnah and the Gemara together, you have the Talmud, there's different editions of Talmud too, but um, that's what the Mishnah is. And there's a whole section in there on the Shema, when it's to be said, how it's to be said. But the point is, it's a confession. It's, it's what makes the believing Jewish people one. Here, or Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 Now, what I've done on the screen, and I'll get my ugly face out of the way, is I've given you the Greek from the Greek Septuagint. Now, this is important. Why? Because the Greek Septuagint was the Bible of the early church. And in the text we're going to be looking at, um, it was written in Greek, and hence it would be written to people who... Uh, would have access to the Shema primarily through the, 
the Greek rather than from the Hebrew. So you see down below, Akue Israel, Kurias Hathaya Semon, Kurias Heis Esten. Now the purple doesn't show up real well there, but for those wondering, it is Heis, not Ice. That's a rough breather uh, over the Yoda. So Akue Israel, here Israel, Kurias Hathaya's Hemon, Kurias Heis Esten. Now notice what uh, what term, uh, Rich says it looks great on the screen. Good. Notice what term is repeated twice in both the Greek and the Hebrew. It's in red for those of you looking for it. Kurios, which is Yahweh. The as, Eloheinu, it only appears once. The term one, echad, heis, appears once, but kurias, Yahweh, appears twice in the Shema. So why do I call this the Christian Shema? Well, that's Deuteronomy. But then we have what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, once again, this is a, um, there are a number of key Christological texts that come to us in the context of uh, sermon illustrations, uh, practical exhortations. Um, and what that means is what the apostle is communicating was stuff that was already understood by his hearers. He didn't have to stop and go, I need to explain something to you that I didn't tell you about when I was with you. It doesn't do any of that stuff. The fact that he can use um, the these illustrations uh, demonstrates that it was something that they, they already understood. And so in 1 Corinthians Chapter 8, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. And he says, you know, there's all sorts of so-called gods, those that are called gods, idols in the world. And then he says, but for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus the Messiah, through whom are all things, and we through him. Now, just, just look at that for a moment. But for us. So, for, for those of us who know the truth, know the true God, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus the Messiah, through whom are all things, and we through him. Now, does that look familiar to you? Here is the Greek. Alhemin heis theos hapater. Hmm, heis theos. Uh, yeah, we just, didn't we just see that in the Greek subject? Yeah, we did. Ex hu ta panta kai hemais ice auton kai heis kurios. Hmm. 
Heis and Kurios. Oh, okay. Jesus Christos. Dihu ta panta. Kai he mais di altu. So you see how it's constructed. You have, to us, there's one God, the Father, and then the description phrase, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, description phrase. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. So let's look at the terms. We've got heis, one, theos, God, heis again, kurios, Jesus Christ, Lord. So let's put the Shema over here across from 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul summarizes what Christians know and what the pagans in Corinth don't know. Notice the terminology. Kurios, found twice. Here's Theos. Here's Heis, used twice. One God, one Lord. What has Paul done here? What has he accomplished here? He has taken the Shema, the defining prayer of the Jewish people, and he has expanded it. Expanded it in light of the historical reality of the incarnation, the ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of the Son. The fundamental evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. And he's taken the very prayer that defines the Jewish people, the people of God. And what now defines the people of God? This profession. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. So when someone... When someone says, well, all through the New Testament, God is simply another word for Father. Well, that's not true. It's not true in Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and probably Romans 9.5, and there's those we can look at. But most of the time, yes, who's Lord? Is the Father not Lord? Is, is Lord a lesser term? Lord's a more specific term. Lord is the term used for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And who's Lord? Who's the one Lord? The Son, Jesus. Now, no one's going to suggest that that elevates Jesus over the Father. I will. Okay. The internet has proven to all of us that saying no one is probably not a wise term. People will come up with anything. Um, but the reality is that kurios 
is just as exalted a title and name as Theos. And every time when John in John 12, 41 tells us that the one that Isaiah saw sitting upon the throne, being worshipped by the angels, Yahweh, was Jesus. When he tells us that, when Peter tells us the same thing, when he says, sanctify Christ as Yahweh in your hearts. When Paul tells the same thing in the number of different times, but in the Carmen Christi, every knee bow, every tongue confess, that's to whom? To Yahweh. That's done to Jesus. Does this in any way denigrate the Father? No. But it demonstrates that the argument that is being presented by Unitarians can't fit the fullness of what you actually have in Scripture itself. There's too much here. Um, it is a limiting perspective that has to push out the broad revelation that you have in Scripture itself. So let's keep that in mind. But as you all may have noticed, oops, Wrong, wrong uh, drag it to the wrong screen here. Uh, make sure this fits over here. It does. A number of you really like this, and if you don't, I apologize. But I want to work through a similar statement from the patristic period about which I know absolutely nothing, according to certain people. Um, despite having one of the favorite classes I taught for Golden Gate years ago was development of patristic theology. That was, not only was that a whole lot of fun, we actually got to take the class. We, we did a cruise that fit during the time period. And I don't know how this happened. I don't know what's going on in the economy, but on that cruise, we had well over 200 people in our group because if I recall correctly, it cost less than $200 to go on it. It was wonderful. It was on the Zondam. It was beautiful. It was a great time. We even had one of the classes uh, in in my cabin. And uh, it was great. It was wonderful. But anyway, uh, again, I know nothing about uh, patristics uh, according to uh, certain individuals. But it's interesting to me that... If Corinthians, let's just let's just say Corinthians is written around 50. There's all sorts of arguments as to the exact time frame, but let's say around 50. And Ignatius is on his way to Rome, and he writes his epistles around 107, 108. Now, some people try to argue about that, but I'd say 107, 108 is a good, good number. You're talking less than a 60-year difference between the apostle writing to the Corinthians and being able to assume that they're not going to just freak out when he expands the Shema. Because if this was something new, if this was some radical thing, um, you would expect that he would, that, that the people would freak out because they know what they know what the Shema is. They, they've 
they've heard that before. Um, and so they didn't freak out. I'm trying to adjust something in the unit here. I apologize. Um, I don't know if it'll actually take, but we'll try. Um, come on now. Do what you're told. Okay. We'll see if that works. Anyway, they didn't freak out. And if he's a good teacher, he's not going to just throw something at them they've never heard of before. Um, and leave them wondering what's going what's gonna to happen as a result. <laughs> hey, Rich. I found it. <laughs> Rich knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's back. <laughs> you know, that's what had, that's what was making the noise before. There's a, okay, now we've got, now I do need to explain it. Sorry to interrupt things. There is a uh, piece of, sort of like styrofoam, wasn't it? Thin styrofoam that when they put this thing together, they didn't take it out of the vents or something like that. And it keeps running around the vent system and it gets trapped and stuff and makes noise. And Rich tried to pull it out of this vent right here and all he did was make a hole out of it. Uh, I will I will, I will, do it more carefully this time. But yes, it's right there. Uh, it, it has returned. <laughs> uh, RVing, it's so much fun. All right, let's take a look at this. Um, so 60 years have passed where Paul can expand the Shema, and the Corinthians aren't freaked out, all right? So let's, let's look at this. You go, oh, good grief, what is that? I'm, we're only looking at Ephesians 7, 2. Um, here, Ignatius writing to the Ephesians. Now, by the way, uh, Long story, and I've told the story a number of times before, and somewhere on our website is an uh, article that I wrote many, many years ago uh, called Scholastic Dishonesty in the Watchtower. And it was I wrote it in response to a uh, horrific article that the Watchtower published trying to say that Ignatius did not teach the deity of Christ. They skipped all the direct passages where at least 10 times, and maybe as many as 14 times, Ignatius refers to Jesus Christ as God. Not a God, not a lesser God. He wasn't a polytheist. Um, he's using the term God in a New Testament context, similar to Melito, Sardis, and, and others that we can mention. And the Washtower Society just quoted from pseudo-Ignatian sources, uh, to try to get around this reality. So, here's a text from Ignatius. He's writing to the Ephesians. And, again, it's sort of like Paul writing to the Corinthians. It's, it's in the flow. It's not like, hey, I've got something new to teach you. Let me explain this to you. No. It is couched in the language that indicates that he expects his listeners to understand and to embrace what he's saying without a lengthy explanation. 
what it says, Heis iatras estin, there is one physician. Sarkakos kai pneumatikos, of flesh and of spirit. Genitas kai ah genitas. Generate and ingenerate. Begotten and not begotten. And anthropotheos, God in man. That's as close as you're going to get. And remember, Ignatius is one of the earliest writers we have. Right at the beginning of the second century. God in man. That's close you're going to get to uh, not only incarnational language, language, but the God-man. And and you could almost put it that way, the God-man. Um, yeah. Uh, Rich says there is, there, there's the article. Um, it's on AOBLA, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Historical Dishonesty in the Watchtower Society. Yeah, it's, it's on the website. Maybe I'll try to link to it uh, if I remember to do so after this. Um, God in man, and thanata zoe alethene, true life in death. True life in death. Kai, now notice this phrase begins with Kai. The others did not. There's a reason, because there's two Kais. Kai ek Marias, Kai ek Theyu. So when you have your two Kais like that, it's both from Mary and from God. Both from Mary and from God. Proton pathetas kai tate apathes. First, able to suffer, then not able to suffer. Jesus Christos hakurias hemon, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the one physician. Once again, you have a man going to his death. He's going to his martyrdom. He's writing to churches as a bishop. You're not going to be wasting your time when you're... This is going to be the most important stuff you can communicate. And so what does he say? There is one physician, but that one physician... And notice, one, two, three, four, five, six statements that give us, honestly, in the year 108, as high a Christology as we will get at Chalcedon. It really is. Of flesh and of spirit. Well, how does that work? You have to have the specifics to believe. Someone once said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right, uh, right after someone who said, my, my Lord and my God. Of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate. Now, he's emphasizing the contrasts in Jesus. We would talk about the two natures in Christ. But he's emphasizing the contrasts. And if you try to um, make um, if you try to 
say, well, which period of Jesus' life was this? Is this pre-incarnate or post-incarnate? And, and that's not what he's trying to do, and so you'll it get it become difficult. Generate and ingenerate, God in man, God in man. That's not the Father in man. He's not a modalist. Some people have accused Ignatius of modalism. He was not a modalist, as we'll see in one other quote that we'll look at here before we wrap things up. But he does believe he was God, he was en anthropo theos, God in man. And there's Ignatius using theos, not in reference to the Father. In death, true life. So again, you have the contrast. You have the giving of that perfect human life, and yet the result being zoe alethene, true life to all who are in him, to him in his resurrection. But then please notice, kai ek morias kai ek both from Mary and from God. You, you can mock two natures speculation all you want. Apostle Paul said they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. You can't crucify the glorious Lord unless he's taken on flesh. From Mary and from God. Both. Kai ek Marias, Kai ek theu. That's why the Kai is repeated there. Both and. Both from Mary and from God. First passable and then impassable. So again, there's a change. And so when I when I listen to Tuggy saying, it's definitional, God cannot die. Aside from, now we have to discuss what death is. It's not cessation of existence. But this is, again, listening to Tuggy is like listening to a lot of my Muslim friends. They share a whole lot in common and the the fundamental assertion that is being made is the same assertion that's being made by the Muslims and, and that's why my, my debate in 2011 in Australia with Abdullah Kunda is still my favorite after all these years still my favorite with a Muslim because Abdullah tried to understand where we were coming from. He read my book. He tried to use our language to communicate his understandings. And where where the two positions hit is the Muslim is saying God can create perfect human nature, but he cannot take on perfect human nature. And part of the objection was because that would involve a change in him. And then when I pointed out, no, we're not talking about the divine nature changing at all. We're not talking about Eutychianism. We're not talking about a, a 50% man, 50% God situation. But fundamentally, what the Unitarians are saying is God can create perfect humans, but he cannot take on a perfect human nature. And so if, if he were to do so, he could not give the life of that individual as a ransom for sin. He doesn't have that capacity. And again, Unitarian philosophy is too stinking little 
to deal with the broad expanse of divine revelation. So you just get rid of the divine revelation. You just pare off the corners, you know. So, you know, when I put these this stuff up here, you know, I take an exacto knife and you know, I get rid of what doesn't fit, right? Well, that's what Unitarian philosophy does. It's not big enough. Gotta have a box. God's gotta, you know. Oh. Did you do that? Because if you did that, I'm gonna no, 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 no. Okay, see. All right. I'm I'm wait I've got my phone. I'm just <laughs> see Rich. Rich, let me let me point something out to you, son. I see the computer right there. In fact, I can see you on the computer right there. I can turn that computer off. Yes, I can. Uh-huh. I see you smiling. Okay. This is this is interesting. Now I can see now I can now I can see Rich down there. That's 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 pretty, sort of cool. Okay. Um first passable and then impassable. That would be after the resurrection. Jesus Christ our Lord. So, real quickly here, scroll down just a little bit. And I want you to see in Ephesians 9:1 um, Ephesians 9 1 starting here um, you are as um, stones of a temple prepared beforehand for the building of Theu Petras God the Father being raised up on a pheromenoi aista hupse being raised up to the heights diates Mechanes. Mechanes. That's where we get mechanic, mechanical, engine. The engine of Jesus Christ, Has Essence Taras, which is the cross. Skoineo Chromonoi, using as a as a rope to numati to hagio, using as a rope the Holy Spirit. This is in just a matter of a couple sentences of what you have in Ephesians 7, uh, Ignatius' epistle. Now, this is 108. This isn't 325. This isn't post-451. This is as primitive as you're going to get. And it's as high a Christology as you're going to get. The man can talk about what God is doing in this world as stones of the temple built being prepared by God the Father using as the engine Jesus Christ, which is the cross, and as the rope lifting up those stones, the Holy Spirit. What a picture of the triune God working in his church, working amongst his people. Isn't it incredible? And this is in the early church. Now again, I know nothing about patristics. I, I, I might be a professor of church history, but it doesn't matter. Um, but it seems to me that when you read something like that and you allow it to speak, it's speaking very clearly. 
as to who Christ is. And in the most early writings that we have outside the New Testament. Important stuff. Important stuff. So thankful that we have the opportunity to talk about these things and to share this information. And I just, I really hope that many of you in our audience, you will take notes, you will take this information in, and you will pray to God, give me opportunity to speak to those who have been given false teachings and false doctrine. Unitarians, they're all over the place. Give me the opportunity uh, to be a witness to these individuals. They need to be evangelized. They've been given a Jesus who cannot save. Who cannot save. And um, so, that's one of the reasons we will continue to press on uh, with, uh, with those things. I love spending that kind of time, not only in the New Testament, but uh, in writings of the early church fathers, uh, in the languages in which they wrote, uh, even though I think there's a lot of philosophers that probably couldn't do that in the original languages. But what do I know, right? So I think today is Thursday. Yes. So um, we have the conference in Littleton uh, Saturday morning. Uh, two two messages I'll be giving Sunday morning as well. Um, and Redemption Hills Church information's right there on the on the front page. I hope those of you in the area will be able to uh, uh, join us and uh, be challenged and edified by by what's uh, what's there. And uh, then uh, next week, uh, later next week, uh, heading up toward Ely, Minnesota, and all that information is on the website uh, as well. Um, and two stops along the way, uh, getting there, and then hot footing it back. So no time for stops on the way back. It's just whew, long days. Uh, hope not to run into any tornadoes or anything like that. Uh, yeah, would not want to be in one of these in a tornado. Not a not a good good spot to be. Uh, but uh, then back here briefly for a while, uh, and home only for a month again uh, before heading for for G three. Hopefully, seeing a lot of you uh, there uh, for for G three as well. So uh, with that, uh, I will uh, thank uh, Rich for messing around with stuff in the background. We'll have a little conversation about that once we get done with all this. But thanks for watching The Dividing Line. We will see you next time. God bless.